Welcome to the Yours in Marketing Podcast. Hey, it's Blake here. If this is the first time that you're joining us on the Yours in Marketing Podcast, do me a favor. Please go wherever you get your podcast, doesn't matter where, and please review, rate, subscribe to the podcast right now. Well, or after the episode, whichever works for you. We're really looking for your support so that we can build this and make it even more valuable for you. So please rate, review, and subscribe the Yours in Marketing podcast. I thank you from the bottom of my heart. On this week's episode of the Yours in Marketing podcast, I spoke with April Dunford, who was the founder and the chief strategist behind Ambient Strategy. And she was once with a bunch of large companies. Now she's doing her own consulting at Ambient. And we talked about positioning, which is something that you hear about, but maybe don't go super in depth with. But now we're going to do that on this episode. So if this is a foreign term for you, stick around. Here are the three main points that we're going to touch on here that you'll find a lot of value in. First off, we talk about what is positioning in marketing. Then we kind of move on to talking about how to actually find your product's position in the marketplace. And finally, we talk about how positioning fits in with branding and go-to-market strategies. There's a lot to unpack here, so I will stop talking now and get into the episode with April Dunford. Today on the Yours in Marketing podcast, I have April Dunford, who is the founder and also you do marketing strategy positioning for ambient strategy. You're a board member on Sampler. You've got all other kinds of things in the works as well. I would love to give you a chance to introduce yourself and which one of those product projects takes up the most of your time. Well, first of all, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. The bulk of my time right now is spent consulting. I generally work on projects related to positioning, generally with uh, B2B tech startups. That takes up the bulk of my time. But yeah, I do a little sitting on boards, a little angel vesting, a little public speaking, put out a book this year, a bit of this and that. But most of the time I'm consulting. So number one focus is consulting with Ambient. And you've been doing that for a decade now. Is that is that crazy that it's been a decade? Yeah, you know what? And it hasn't really been like, you know, I started out in consulting like a decade ago, but, you know, I consult for a year or two, but then, you know, I'd fall in love with one of the companies I'd be working with and then I'd join them full time and, <laughs> you know, and we'd do that for a few years Got and then it. I'd bounce back out after an acquisition or whatever and go back to consulting. This version of my consulting business is, I'd say, about three years old. So it, it feels more like three years. But but if I go back to when, you know, when I actually registered the business, yeah, nine or ten years now, yeah. So how many times has that happened where you've just said, like, okay, I'm going to go <laughs> work with the client that I was already working with full time? Twice. Well, actually, maybe three times now that I think of it. Yeah, you know what? Three times. Yeah, three times. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think at the beginning when I was consulting, I wasn't taking it all that seriously. I think I had this idea where, you know, I work at a startup, the startup gets acquired. I'm in the big company doing my earnout, <laughs> and <laughs> I would be finished that I'd come out of the big company and then I'd be like, where do I want to work next? And, you know, when I was really junior at the beginning, I, you know, I would talk to a bunch of companies, I'd have some interviews, and then I'd join. But later, when I got more senior, I worried more about, is this the right company for me? And can I really help them? And am I a good fit for what they're doing? And so I usually thought that, you know, a good way to kind of get to know each other would be, let's do a little consulting engagement first, and we'll figure it out. And if I like you, then I'll join. <laughs> now I'm done got with it. that. So, you know, in the last mm -hmm. three years, I've switched more to like, 
you know, I'm not, I don't think I'm going back in house again. So, uh-huh. you know, and what I'm doing now is a lot more focused as well. Back then I would go in and do, you know, kind of whatever needed to get done on the marketing side. Now I'm focused really specifically on positioning work because I think mm-hmm. it's hard work to do. And a lot of companies don't know how to do it. And there aren't a lot of consultants out there that can help you. So it's a good spot for me. And it's good work too. Like I, you know, I'm quite picky about who I work with. So I, you know, I do a lot of vetting to make sure that you really have a problem that I think I can solve. And, you know, and and I'm older now and I don't, I don't have as much like energy for working with jerks as I used to. So, you know, so I do a bit of a jerk filter, you know, and so as a result, all my clients are just they're lovely. They're amazing. They have a real need for what I do. I've already decided I can help them, you know, so we get to the end and we're all happy. And so this is good work and I would like to do it for the rest of my life. My working life, that is. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Hopefully not the rest of my life. But the rest of my yeah. working life, I would like to do this. Yeah. For some point, maybe retire. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, there's definitely retirement in my future. I'm not one of these weirdos that's going to work forever. Not me. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Just for some context for people that obviously positioning is kind of self-explanatory, but to go a little bit more in depth as to what that really means and what you're looking for when companies come to you and they say, I need help with positioning. What are they really saying that they need help with and how do you provide them with that assistance? You know what? That is a really great question because when I started doing positioning work, one of my biggest challenges was one, nobody knows what positioning is. And two, most of the people <laughs> that have positioning problems, they don't necessarily know that's the problem. So a sure. lot of times when positioning is weak, what it feels like is a marketing or sales execution problem. So companies will come to me and say, you know what, I don't know if this is positioning or not, but here's my problem. My problem is I got customers and customers love my stuff and I have zero churn and customers are so happy. But when I'm talking to a prospect in a first meeting, they have no clue what we do. And in fact, it usually takes us several meetings and then suddenly a light comes on and they say, oh, yeah, this is what you do. And, and you know, and then we can proceed to actually getting a deal done. And so that is generally the most common symptom of a positioning problem. So what positioning is, in my definition, is positioning defines how your offering is the best in the world at providing something that a well-defined set of customers cares a lot about. And so there's a lot of pieces to that. So in essence, positioning defines, these are my competitive alternatives. These are the capabilities that I have that the alternatives don't have. This is the value that we can uniquely deliver that those capabilities, powers. Uh, And then here's the definition of exactly who my best fit customer is that cares a lot about that value. And then lastly, there's this, uh, I'm positioning my product in a market category that makes that value obvious to those people. And so positioning is kind of the sum total of that. And so that that's a really big, chunky marketing concept that if you're a founder of a startup, you don't necessarily know any of that. <laughs> All you know is, is that sometimes it's really easy to close a deal and sometimes it's really hard. Sometimes people love our stuff and sometimes they don't. And I'm not exactly sure why. 
And generally, a lot of that stuff, what it comes down to is we've got a product. We don't understand exactly how it's differentiated from other ways of solving that problem. And as a result, we don't understand exactly the kind of customers we should be trying to go after. So sometimes we're trying to close deals with customers that just aren't that good a fit. And sometimes we have customers that are a really good fit. And we're trying to explain what we do and people have no clue what we're talking about. <laughs> so positioning done right clears all of that up. And it makes it so that everything you do in sales and marketing is that much easier and that much more effective because you're delivering the right message to the right people in a way that everybody gets it. And we'll, we'll definitely dive into that, obviously, more within mm -hmm. this podcast. I kind of want to start there for context, but just for reference for the listeners here that are a little unsure about positioning, if you want to learn more about this, April literally wrote the book about product positioning. So we will, we will <laughs> yeah. get into that. Um, but definitely great resource here. But I want to take a step back and dive into kind of how you got your start. Because I, I think it's really interesting to look at cer certain people's past. And yours specifically, you go to the University of Waterloo for a program that doesn't really exist a lot of other places. It's You graduated in systems yeah, design true. engineering. And I'm just curious, what is systems design engineering and why was it upfront? Why was it a good fit for your personality in college? Dude, I don't know, man. Like, I, like you know what? I, like, I, I have a degree in it and I still have a hard time telling you what the heck systems design is. Do you know, do you know, why, do you know why I did systems design engineering? I, nobody's ever asked me this question before. And so I'm going to say you heard it here first. I literally did systems design engineering at the University of Waterloo because the year I went in, it was the most difficult program to get into in the most difficult university to get into in the country. And I'm kind of competitive like that. <laughs> and that's literally it. Like I thought I wanted to do tech. I like tech. And then I thought, and I'm uh -huh. super smart, right? I think I'm so smart. And I thought, you know what, if I'm going to do tech, what am I going to do? Well, and never, and then I find out engineering was the hardest thing to get into. And I said, okay, I guess I'm going to do engineering at the University of Waterloo. That was the hardest to get into for engineering. And I said, good, that's where I'm going to go. And then they had all these different flavors of engineering and I didn't know which <laughs> one I wanted to take. And someone said, well, and, and this may or may not be true now. I have no idea. But back then, the hardest one to get into was systems design. And Systems design sounded kind of cool because it was, you did all the regular engineering things, like a little bit of programming and mechanics of formable solids and stuff that you do in engineering, a lot of calculus. Uh, but then you also did uh, this systems theory, which I thought sounded really cool. It turned out I didn't actually use that for anything, <laughs> but, but it, it sounded cool. And that's how I ended up there. <laughs> You're you're you definitely you're in your twenties. You don't know anything, man. Sure. You don't know anything. Yeah. So that's that's how I ended up there. And then, you know, not surprisingly, I got to the end of that. And then I was like, all right, well, what am I gonna do with this funky degree? Mm -hmm. And and when I graduated, most of the folks in systems design were going to work at everybody was going to work at a tech company. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll go work at a tech company. And so I did. And and the, the company I worked for just happened to be a startup. And I'll tell you, back then, startups weren't cool. Everybody wanted to work at big companies because there's that's where all the money was. And there, you know, there wasn't a culture of venture capital like there is now. 
But I ended up at a startup because I didn't want to program because I decided program. I thought programming was a little boring. <laughs> Plus, I didn't think I was all that great at it. Like there were some people in my class who were really good at programmers, and I was just an okay programmer. And my friend worked at a startup, and I was applying to jobs. And my friend put the word in for me, and I got this job at a startup in the marketing department. But it was a, a product marketing sort of product manager, product marketing job. And uh, but it happened to be in the marketing department. And how I got this job was uh, the the job had two requirements. One, we were selling an SQL database and you had to know how to program an SQL, which I did because wow. <laughs> I got an engineering degree. And mm -hmm. so I could, I could program SQL. And, and the second requirement was you had to be not afraid of public speaking because you were going to do a lot of like demos with customers and go along with the salespeople and occasionally do stuff on stage at a trade show or whatever. And mm -hmm. I was always the, the person that presented stuff in the group project. So I said, oh, yeah, I got that covered, too. And so I ended up in the in the marketing department of a startup, and then that startup immediately got acquired by this big startup, the big not a startup, but was a startup, big tech company in Silicon Valley. And my boss quit after the after the acquisition, and I ended up being the lead of this whole team. <laughs> like two years <laughs> out of engineering school, I'm running this great big global, I think I have 45 people on my team, great big global <laughs> marketing team with like tens of millions of dollars of budget. And I literally can't even spell marketing, like absolutely nothing. <laughs> like I, I know nothing, zip. But I had this thing and I think it was kind of like, you, you get this from, you know, doing the hardest program at the hardest university, whatever, whatever. I, I had come out of systems design and I passed that. So I was like, how hard could it be? Mm. <laughs> and it turned out it was really freaking hard. And, but, but I got lucky, <laughs> you know, I had, I had really good, smart, experienced people on my team and I learned a lot from those folks. And then I did this big sort of self-study thing where I was like, I better learn something about marketing before anybody twigs to the fact that I don't really belong here in this job. And I went, took a bunch of classes, read a bunch of books, and then I just kind of fudged my way through it. And then I thought, sure. you know what, not only is this fun, I think I'm kind of good at this. And so that's what I did from that point forward. I left there. I went to another startup. I ran marketing for them. Uh, a year and a half later, we got acquired. I ended up at the big company again, running a great big <laughs> team. I did my earn out there. I popped back out and I did like six of those in a row. <laughs> That's exhausting. <laughs> it, yeah, but it was fun, man. It was like I, I kept. I kept hoping that one of them would just grow and get big and not get acquired, but that's kind of just not the way the dice rolled for me on those. But, but yeah, and so that was kind of my career for like 25, 30 years. And then, you know, and then now I've made this transition in, in, into consulting and specifically doing positioning stuff. And, and one of the things that doing that work in those jobs like that is that I come into a company as the new VP marketing and we almost always had a positioning problem. And, and so we would tackle that first because you kind of need to fix that first before you get into other stuff. So we would tackle the positioning problem first or we'd come in and the positioning was okay, but then at some point it would be off. So in every single one of these, I had to reposition the product and then we get acquired and then I ended up with a big company and then I would inherit a bunch more products and they all had positioning problems too. So in the course of doing this over however many years, 
I repositioned 16 products. And then that's just because of the weird arc of my career. Like most people don't work at that many companies. But it's, so when I decided to get really focused on consulting and just do this, my first thought was, you know, maybe I should do positioning work because I think I've done more of that than the, than almost anybody. <laughs> so, you know, if I, I have kind of a way that I like to do this. Maybe I could teach other people how to do it. And that's how I ended up here. But it's weird. Yeah, it's not the normal. It's not, yeah. you know, it's not the way you think your career is going to go when you're sitting there at grade 10. <laughs> yeah, that's that's for sure. I mean, you're certainly not the first person on the podcast to not use their degree necessarily or to use it oh, differently sure. than you had, had intended to. But it's just always interesting to see how, how your career plays out. And sounds like you've had an especially unique one with the tons of companies that you've worked for. You've worked for yeah. some pretty pretty large companies as well. I'm curious if there are any core yeah. lessons that from that time with those bigger companies that really stand out. Oh, well, you know, the working at the startup is so different from the big company. Like, you know, mm -hmm. at the startup, you're you're kind of you kind of got your hands in everything. And you know, even stuff that's way outside of your department, you know, you got your hands in it. And 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 that's good. Whereas you get to the big company and there's kind of two ways of being at a big company. So either you've got a more junior job and you're just focused on getting something done. And the junior jobs tend to be super, super, super specialized and narrow. So, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be touching product marketing and lead gen and PR and communications. Like those things are, there's entire giant departments dedicated to each of those things. So you would be responsible for one tiny corner of lead generation and that would be it. And you would be expected to be like a super expert on that one thing. And then the second kind of job you get at a big company is the leadership role. And and for most of my career at big big companies, I had these kind of more senior executive roles. And those jobs are, again, really different from a senior executive role at a startup. The senior executive role at a place like IBM, my job was to create the conditions where my team could be successful. Mm -hmm. And so that included making sure my team was getting some budget <laughs> and making sure Absolutely. my team wasn't going to get killed by weird politics from other teams that didn't like what my team was doing. Right? And, and it would make sure that my team was getting recognized. So if they were doing good work, I had to make sure that my boss knew that and my boss's boss knew that. And so all of everything I was trying to do was get the right team in place and then just clear the path for them to be their awesome selves and get some stuff done. And, and you know, at a startup, you do a little bit of that as the leader, but you tend to also be doing a lot of hands-on stuff at the same time. And when, you know, my first executive job at a big company, you know, my boss kind of had to sit me down and say, look, like your job here is to not do stuff. And every time I talk to you, you're doing stuff. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, what kind of a weird company is this? You don't want me to do stuff. And at the beginning, I just thought he was full of shit. But then, but then eventually I, I got it. Like I was like, I am mm -hmm. doing stuff, but it's different, right? So the, 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 the job of being a good executive at a big company is very different than, you know, the job of being the, the person that does execution of stuff at a big company. Those things are really different. And then both those jobs are completely different 
than what you're doing at a startup. It, ultimately, for me, I felt like the startup was more suited to my personality, I guess, like or just the way that I work. Like, I like the jobs that were a bit broader, you know, leverage some of my leadership skill, but at the same time, I was still allowed to get my hands in it <laughs> and sure. do stuff. Do something. <laughs> that, yeah. I had a hard time with, you know, just spending all my time in the executive sphere, sort of, sort of just, you know, managing politics and managing budget and managing, you just clear in the path. I didn't find that work as satisfying as, you know, the, the, the job is an, of an executive at a startup where I'm doing all that. Plus I'm really in a lot of ways, deeply involved with setting the vision and the direction for the whole company. And, you know, occasionally get my hands dirty and, you know, write copy on the website if it needs to get done and stuff yeah. like that too. <laughs> yeah. Well, ha having worked now that, now that you're doing your own consulting, What's kind of having worked at smaller startups, getting acquired by more enterprise level companies and working for both of them, mm. how has that impacted having worked in those positions now when you're consulting for those different types, for whether it's a startup versus an enterprise company, how has that made your approach a little bit different or, or what is the difference in approach when working between those different size companies? Yeah, like they, the different size companies need really different offerings. So I spend the majority of my time working with startups, you know, one, because I just like the work better. And, and two, because, uh, you know, the startups at a certain stage have this positioning problem or feel this positioning problem. And so they tend to be startups that are, if you're venture back, what we would say is sort of late seed, series A, sometimes series B, you have this problem. So you you maybe you've got some traction. You might have a million revenue. You might have ten million revenue. You probably don't have fifty. You're probably smaller than that. And somewhere in there, you will feel this positioning problem as you try to scale out lead generation or as you try to scale out mark or sales. And so th that's the majority of the companies I work with. And so in those cases, I can get the executive team together in a room because. Positioning is really something that I need the whole executive team together to work through. And in a workshop, in a couple of days, we can we can work through the component pieces of good positioning and get to a good outcome in a couple of days where, you know, the team can then go run with it and build messaging and, and sales materials and stuff off this new positioning. For bigger companies, like having worked in there, like if, if you were a consultant and came to me when I was at IBM and said, hey, let's do a workshop and we'll get the senior leaders together in a room, I would laugh you out of my office. <laughs> <laughs> like I'd be like, dude, that's going to take us eight months just to get the calendars aligned. Yeah. <laughs> we can't do that. <laughs> and by the way, we already have very well well-established set processes for doing things, releasing a new product into market or making a change in business strategy or making a change in messaging or making a change in lead generation. And, and you're proposing we do a thing that touches all of that. <laughs> and so how are we actually going to do it? So with a bigger company, I can't, I can't, I literally can't come in 
and fix your positioning or even facilitate fixing your positioning for you. But what I can do if you're a big company is I can come in and teach your product team and or your marketing team a process for working on their own positioning. So I'm essentially arming you with a process and a methodology to go and but it's your job to figure out how to take that process and methodology, make it work within your internal processes and systems to then go fix it yourself. So with the startups, I'm more, you know, we're it, again, it's this difference between clearing the path and doing the stuff yep. <laughs> at the startup. You know, I can actually, we're all going to get together and we're going to do the stuff together as a team with me kind of leading that and facilitating that. With the big companies, it's more like a class. I, I'm essentially teaching you the methodology. I'm giving you the tools, but it's up to you to figure out how to take the tools and apply it within what you're doing internally, which is which is the best way to do it, at least I've found. I, I would love to dive in a little bit more into positioning and, and talk about the the different nuances of it because I think it is definitely one of those parts of marketing that people have heard about but haven't really studied on their own or learned how to do this. Yeah, yeah, I'm curious... Terrible. What are what are some core differences between understanding between positioning and branding? Yeah, so a, a lot of people are fuzzy between those two things, and I would say that recently the the confusion between the two has gotten worse because in the market right now there's kind of an evolving idea of what branding is. And so because of that evolving idea of what branding is, that it now feels like there's more overlap than I guess what we had pre previously. But in my opinion, branding to at least in my definition of it, which you know branding people will come and tell me I'm wrong, I'm sure, but in my definition of it, branding had a lot to do with how how the company presented itself to its clients. So if we were doing branding work, we'd be, we'd be talking about, should we use a formal tone of voice or an informal tone of voice? Should we use photographs or clip art? Should, you know, what sort of fonts should we use? And what is the image we're trying to project in the sum total of all of our kind of, kind of assets around that are customer facing? Whereas positioning, in my opinion, is something that needs to happen before then. So how do I know whether my brand voice should be formal or informal? Well, it depends on who my customers are. Well, who are my customers and how do I figure that out? That's positioning. Branding doesn't tell you that, right? Branding, branding is, you know, you've already made those decisions and then those are inputs into your branding decisions. So the positioning has to happen first. So Part of the reasons why I think people are so confused about positioning is because many companies don't do it deliberately. They are simply going with a kind of default position like it's a given. So in most of the startups I've worked at, how this happened was, you know, the, the founder woke up in the morning and, and said, I'm going to build a better email or I'm going to build a better database or a better CRM or whatever their idea was for the product was, you know, and they went out and they said, better email, that's what we're going to build. And, you know, and they built a thing, they put it out in the market and customers said, I like this bit, I don't like that bit and stuff starts changing. And at the same time, there's all kinds of other companies out there 
building better email or doing things around email, or all of a sudden we're talking about chat or bots or other things. And, and but meanwhile, you as the founder of the team, you know, you're building a better email. You've got this thing, and you you put it out there. And fast forward a couple of years, the world has changed. Your product has changed. Everything's changed except your definition of it. So you're yeah. out there saying, "Hey, this is a, this is a better email," and customers are looking at it, going, "Dude, I don't know. Like you're calling it email, but I think maybe it's chat. Like it kind of mm-hmm. feels like chat. And 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 why isn't it chat? Nah, I'm confused. What are you guys again? Your email? How does that work? <laughs> and so, <laughs> so you know, your definition of what this thing is that was never defined deliberately. So I'll give you an example. This is a client that I had worked with a while back, but in this email vein, these guys called me and they said what they had built was email for lawyers. And they were ex-lawyers and they built this thing (laughs) and they said, there's emails for special email for lawyers. And I'm like, well, that's cool. Email for lawyers. And who knew the lawyers in their own email, but okay, fine. (laughs) Email for lawyers. So, so they showed me the demo. And at one point I'm like, Hey, so how does a calendar work on this thing? And the guys go, Oh, we don't have a calendar. And I'm like, what, what, wait, how can you be email with no calendar? I'm like, so, you know, you're competing with Gmail and Outlook. Like I can't replace Gmail and Outlook with your thing. And they're like, no, no, you can't. And I'm like, but your thing makes no sense to me. (laughs) And then finally I said, but wait, wait, wait. So you're telling me you have all these happy customers. Why do the customers love you? And they said, well, customers love us because we have a special feature. We have a patent on it. And what it is is a super secure context-aware file sharing. So you're the lawyer and you've got clients and you need to share documents together. This thing figures out automatically who should have access and gives them super secure access to that. That's actually pretty cool. Mm. But it isn't email either. So I could take that exact same product, pick it up and put it in another market. So let's say I call it team collaboration. Now who's my competitor? It's Slack kind of, right? If I'm team collaboration for lawyers, right? Let's say I'm team collaboration for lawyers. Well, it'd be like Slack, except it would have some cool Slacky stuff for lawyers, right? And that's exactly what they have. It's exactly what they have. Super secure, context-aware, file-sharing thing. Great, right? And that recontextualizing that product changes all your assumptions about it. I got different competitors now. I got different key features now that you would assume that I have. I don't. If I call you team collaboration for lawyers, you don't expect me to have a calendar anymore. So what those guys actually had was a really cool product masquerading as crappy email, <laughs> and if you reposition it as team collaboration, all of a sudden, everybody's like, yeah, of course, team collaboration. I get it. Makes sense. I don't care if you don't have a calendar. And, and I do understand your key feature, which is now right in the middle of this thing. I understand who you are, who you're for, all that stuff. We had the best conversation about pricing, too. Like, the worst part about being positioned as email is everybody expects you to be free. Team collaboration, we pay for that. Team collaboration for lawyers, you might even pay extra for that because it's specialized. So I said to the guys, you know what you should do? You should say, team collaboration for lawyers. When the lawyers call you up and you're talking about pricing, you just say, you just say, look, it's team collaboration, but it's special, special team collaboration for lawyers. Special, special. So we just we charge you by the minute mm-hmm. and just let that dangle to the lawyers. Go, what? <laughs> That's not fair. And you say, yeah, I know. <laughs> Anyways, they didn't do that. But they could have done that and they didn't. But this this idea of 
what market you're positioned in. Therefore, the assumptions around who you're for, what your key features, how you're different, all that stuff changes. But we don't generally do it deliberately. What, if you if you were to get a client that I mean you're you're a little more selective it sounds than just accepting whoever but if in theory you did get kind of a middle of the road startup where they've got a product that works it doesn't have tons of incredibly unique features maybe the design's a little bit different but the the value props aren't so clear what can you do mm. for positioning at that at that point is there anything that can be done or does the product really have to dictate all of it. Well, here's the thing. If you got a software product and it's out in the market and you sold some of it, like you, like, let's say you've got reasonable traction. So you're doing like a half million a year, a million a year. You're winning those deals in super crowded markets. Everybody's market is crowded. So you are winning those deals for a reason. And the trick in positioning is what's the reason? And then let's take that reason and put it right in the middle. Like in the case of my email for lawyers, guys, like they, they didn't look like very good email. They didn't even have a freaking calendar. <laughs> but they had one really cool differentiating feature, and that was why people loved them. And so the key to positioning was let's take that feature and put it right in the middle so that everybody gets it and they know why we should buy. So the key to positioning is to look at you got a whole bunch of customers right now. Some of them are super happy. And so if you, you got to go to those super happy customers and understand what's going on with them and how you do that is you go in and you figure out if your stuff didn't exist, what would they do? That tells you what the competitive alternatives are. So you go in there and say, you know, like if we, if we went away, if we had to shut it all off tomorrow, what would you do? Or, you know, what were you doing before we came? You still had the problem. How did you solve it before we showed up? And that'll give you a clue. That's the starting point, right? These are your competitive alternatives. Once you understand that, then you can say, okay, what have we got that the alternatives don't have? That's your secret sauce capabilities. And then you can say, okay, that's my capabilities. How does that translate into value for the customer? And then what are the characteristics of a customer that makes them care a lot about that value? And then lastly, you're like, okay, if, if and now I'm trying to explain this value to these people, what, you know, what's my market that I want to position this in that makes all that stuff obvious? How people mess this up is they're, first of all, they're comparing themselves to the wrong competitors. So they might say, oh, gee, you know, our stuff looks just like everybody else's stuff, but your customers don't say that. So you go to the customer and it's, you know, I had startups do this wrong all the time. So I'll say, who's your competitor? And they'll say, oh, and they'll name all these little companies that you've never heard of that are like three person startups in the Valley that each have like three customers. And then I'll say, okay, so why do customers pick you? And they'll say, oh, they pick us because of ease of use, you know, like in those guys, it takes four clicks to do this thing, but you can do it in one with ours, you know, so we're way easier to use. But then you go to the customers and you say, what would you do if this thing didn't exist? And the customers say stuff like, oh, I just do it in a spreadsheet or, oh, I just hire an intern to do it. And it's like, you know what? You're not competing with those guys in Silicon Valley. You're competing with the intern. And you know how you <laughs> don't beat the intern? On ease of use. The intern is super easy to use. You're, the, the intern's always going to win. <laughs> and so because, you're, because you weren't doing the right comparison, you're not highlighting the right features and the right value. So you're like, okay, now that I know I'm competing with Excel, 
or the intern, what have we got that the intern doesn't have? Well, the intern makes all kinds of mistakes, right? I'm doing it in Excel and I got to rekey the data 14 times. And every time I rekey the data, I make a mistake and that mistake is costly, right? Or whatever your thing is. And then you got to work through the process from that. Okay, starting with the right competitors, what do I got that they don't have? What's my value? You know, and then who cares a lot about that value? I'm not trying to market to everybody. I'm just trying to market to people that care a lot about this one thing I can do different than everybody else. And if I just focus on those customers, then all my marketing campaigns are going to be more effective. All my sales outreach is going to be more effective because I know exactly who's the most likely to love my stuff. This is the trick with all of this. In general, we don't do this on purpose. Again, we just kind of, you know, we got to take it as I'll say, you know, who's your target market? Small, medium business. Like, oh my God. Like, small, <laughs> like that's, that's not enough detail. I can't make campaigns for small, medium businesses. Like what kind of small, medium businesses? And why small, medium businesses? Why do they care about your thing? You know? So it's, it's all of that thinking that most companies, they don't do it. They just kind of take it as a given and they say, okay, build me, you know, and then getting back to your branding thing, right? How is positioning different than branding? Then they'll go to the branding people and say, hey, build me a brand for small businesses. <laughs> I'm like, you know, I don't know how to do that. No one knows how to do that. Yeah. And you end up with this kind of watered down message with a watered down branding and watered down campaigns and watered down sales outreach. And then, and then it just looks like nothing's really working. What, what percentage of companies do you think actually have positioning and branding thought out in depth? Well, so some companies kind of get kind of get there through failure. And those companies, I think, are, are neat because they, you know, and I've talked to a handful of CEOs where I've said, look, I don't think you have a positioning problem. I think your problem, I think your positioning is great. <laughs> And, and those companies, you know, they don't, they don't necessarily have the language to describe it because, you know, the CEO is not always a marketer, but they'll say, you know what, we originally thought we were selling to small, medium businesses. And then we realized that restaurants really liked our stuff. And so then we decided to just focus on restaurants. And then, you know what, we realized that the reason restaurants like our stuff is because you know, we have the ability to do this little thing that, you know, the, the restaurants don't know how to do. So, and, and then once we realize that we realize, huh, not all restaurants need that, but only fast food restaurants do that. So now we know we, you know, we have to market this one thing and we're marketing it just to fast food and then the growth took off. And so if you go to a lot of uh, startup conferences and you hear CEOs talk about it, the ones that are that have been really thoughtful with this stuff have a kind of a neat story where you know they started out targeting one market and then shifted to another and then there was kind of an epiphany around hey people actually really like this bit and once we understand that and then we can understand okay well if this is the bit people really love well what are the characteristics of a company that makes them really love that thing? And then they got really narrow in their focus and that narrowness of focus allowed them to grow really quickly and then expand out from that. And so there's, you know, loads of neat examples of that out there, but, but there are a lot of companies out there. And if you ask them like, do, you know, were you doing a positioning exercise? They'd be like, no, we were just figuring out the business, man. Because <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> positioning is just our marketing way of talking about it. So, you know, for me as a consultant, it's a bit of a challenge because 
I can't just say, hey, I'm the positioning lady. If you have a positioning problem, come and call me. I actually have to, a lot of my business comes through word of mouth where founders are talking to other founders and, and they'll say, hey, you know what? That problem you're talking about, I think that's positioning. And the reason I know that is because we did this thing with this lady. <laughs> you should talk to her. She can help you too. Or people see me at, speak at a conference and in the conference talk, I'm sort of explaining all this stuff. And you can see there's this moment in my talk where there's a handful of people in the room where they just get this look on their face like, oh, shit, that's my thing. <laughs> Yeah. You know, and then they come talk to me after and say that we, we have that, or I'm doing a podcast like this <laughs> and somebody yep. hears it or they read my book or whatever. Right. So, mm. but I don't think most people think about positioning. Therefore they don't think about whether or not they have a positioning problem. Therefore they don't call the positioning lady to solve it. I'm, I'm interested if to talking. Sense. Oh yeah, for sure. I'm, and I'm interested in how this all the positioning side of things fits within a go-to-market strategy. Cause I know that's another thing that, that you work with yeah. pretty in depth and just go-to-market strategy seems so big. Everybody's pretty familiar with it, but how many marketers have actually put one together and really gone in depth on, on a go-to-market strategy? I'm curious, like where does positioning fall in that? And what does a, a really in-depth, great go-to-market strategy actually entail? Yeah. So go to market strategy doesn't have to be a big, complicated thing. You know, it can, it can be at a startup, it can be really, really simple, but, but essentially what, you know, what your go to market strategy is, in my opinion, is you say, look, we want to get, we want to sell this offering to people that look like this, right? So I'm, I'm going to sell this thing and my target market looks like this. So how do I go get them? <laughs> and you might say, well, <laughs> if I'm going to go get people like that, then I, are there all kinds? Are they easy to find? So you'll ask yourself questions like this. Like, are they easy to find? Could I make a list? And if I could make a list, like if it's B2B, right? If I can make a list of accounts, then maybe I just want to do outbound selling to them. So let's try that and see. If I can't just make a list of accounts, how do I filter them? Is there a way to filter them? And so you're asking yourself, well, these are the people I'm trying to go after. Where do they hang out? What's the easiest way to go get them? You know, let's 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 take a look at all the different tactics we could use to go after these folks and let's work through it. You know, like, okay, is it easier to go direct or should I advertise my way into it? Or do I need to build a content strategy and suck them in? How does that work? So that's kind of your go-to-market strategy where you're kind of saying, look, these are the people I'm trying to go get. And this is the mix of things I'm going to do to go out and get them. And then this is how I'm going to move them along, you know, through a funnel. Positioning, how positioning fits into that is, again, it's the input. I can't build a go-to-market strategy until I got a really tight definition on who do I want to go after. And then even when I when it comes to actually executing on the go-to-market strategy, I need messaging. I need content. I need collateral. I need, even if I'm doing outbound selling, I need a list of accounts and I need an, an account-based marketing strategy to go after those folks. And I need offers for people and I need, you know, all this stuff. And I can't do any of that until I have a really tight definition of who the heck is it I'm going after. And I, you know, and, and hopefully good validation on that. And then everything else around that, like messaging and content and all that stuff, I need to deeply understand what my differentiated value is and why you should pick me over the other folks, because that's that's going to be the content of all of the offers and the things that I'm approaching these people with. 
So the foundation in everything we do in marketing and sales is really this positioning piece. And then the go-to-market strategy comes after that. And then we get into tactical execution of, you know, okay, we're going to go do SEO. How do we do that? (laughs) Mm. Yep. (laughs) <laughs> well, I, yeah. another thing, something I want to dive into as well, because you, like I mentioned, you literally wrote the book on positioning um, and it's called Obviously Awesome, focuses on product awesome. positioning specifically. <laughs> yeah. And um, I, I'm curious what your own positioning strategy for the book was and how you set that all up to be a success. Oh, you know, that's a, that's a good question. I have lots of people ask me about how I position myself as a consultant, but I didn't, I didn't have many people ask me about positioning on the book. So I did a lot of, I did a lot of thinking about this and, 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 a, and a bunch of testing on it. So the Bible of positioning, like if you go to marketing school, there is, there is in essence only one book that matters. And that book is called Positioning the Battle for Your Mind by uh, Al Rees Jack Trout. And that's the book that I read in marketing school uh, when I went and took classes. And and even today, if you go and take a class in a university and pretty much anywhere, and there's a course on, and there's a section on positioning, they'll tell you to read that book. That book was published in 1982, before the internet. And so, and, and what's cool about that book, cool or frustrating, depending on your point of view, is the book does this amazing job of defining what positioning is, but it does not tell you how to do it. So the goal for my book was I was going to tell you how to do it. (laughs) So I got a methodology. I got a 10-step process. You ever wanted to know how to do this? This is the book for you. So so I had to think about how I was going to position this book against Reason Trout, because Reason Trout is the benchmark. That is the competitive comparable. <laughs> and so if I think about, you know, positionings, first of all, I got to know the competitive comparable. The competitive comparable is Reason Trout. And the next thing is, what do I have that Reason Trout don't have? Well, what I have is a methodology. They don't give you a methodology. What they wanted you to do, they were doing content marketing in 1982, which is pretty smart of them. They basically wrote the book and just to give you, get you excited about positioning. And then what you had to do is you call them and they do the positioning for you in their secret, secret process that they're not sharing. Right. <laughs> so my idea was there's not secret, secret process. I'm going to, I'm going to tell you how to do it. So that was kind of my whole thing was that, you know, this was going to be the how-to book. So it was, it's going to have to say how-to in there. And then the next, then the next question was, can I, when you talk about framing it in market category, can I actually use the word positioning? And so I had a long set of testing around this where for a long time, I thought I wouldn't actually use the word positioning in the title because people don't know they have a positioning problem. So you don't know you have a positioning problem. How do you know to go buy a positioning book? And then if I did have positioning in the title, how would I make sure that it was different than Reason Trout? Because they wrote the Bible on positioning. So now I got a position against them. And so in the end... For the title of the book, I went for something completely not positioning. So this obviously awesome being sort of this idea of this is what you wish you had, right? You wish you had a product that was just obviously awesome and I didn't need to worry about this stuff. But the subtitle has positioning in it deliberately, but it's how to, right? So it's how to position your product, blah, blah, blah. So that was all kind of well thought out. The other thing is in the execution of the book, if that was my position, 
I also did a lot of thinking about who my readers were for this book. So the readers, the readers that I care the most about as a consultant are startup founders. And so I went around and I talked to a bunch of startup founders <laughs> and I, I talked to them about books. And so I, I talked to as many startup founders as I could. I think I had 50 conversations and I said, Hey, you read any good books lately? You know, tell me about books you're reading. And the one thing I heard very consistently over and over again was startup founders read books. They don't finish books. They want to finish books. They just don't have time. And, and the most frequent scenario I heard it was they bought the book or they download the book on their Kindle. They get on the plane, they would start the book and then the plane ride would be over and then they would never finish it. And so I decided I was going to write a book that you could finish in a plane ride. <laughs> and so I had to kind of fight with my marketing folks and my book folks about that because they thought that was too short for a book. Like they, they kind of wanted me to write a book that was like 300 pages long because business books are long and blah, blah, blah. And my original manuscript was that long, but I just kept chopping it down and chopping it down with the idea that this is not the product my audience wants. My audience wants a book they can get through. So it's going to be a how-to book and they're going to finish it. Secondary audience for this is marketers that are wanting to get smarter on this positioning stuff. And I think the marketers could have paid attention longer for a longer book. But I figured a shorter book would be good for them too and wouldn't turn them off. So I thought, okay, it works for them too. And they're kind of a secondary market for me. I don't sell anything to marketers except books, I guess. So I'm I'm really more focused on the entrepreneurs and how that is. So my positioning sort of came that way. And then, you know, and, the, and then again, thinking about the execution on that positioning. So if I'm trying to get the book in front of startup founders or startup CEOs, where do I go find them? And I have a fairly, I have an okay following on Twitter, like not a huge following compared to, you know, celebrity people, but I have quite an engaged following on Twitter. So I think, so I decided that was going to be a channel for me. And a lot of my followers are entrepreneurs or people in startup land. So I leaned into that a little bit. And then speaking at conferences, you know, I'm a fairly good public speaker. I have the ability to be on stages. Startup founders go to conferences. So I decided that was going to be a channel for me because that worked for me. And then podcasts, like a lot of Founders are listening to podcasts. Marketing people are listening to podcasts. So podcasting has been a good channel for me too. Not to do, I haven't done my own podcast, but I'm having a lot of fun being on other people's podcasts. So <laughs> well, that's kind of how the whole thing, that? that's how I get from positioning to go to market strategy to execution on my book. <laughs> sure. <laughs> do, you, do you feel like, because there's so much that could go into a strategy, whether, whether it's a go-to-market strategy or positioning, do you find yourself overthinking things too often? Like if you're going to do a public speaking event, overthinking what you're going to talk about and the, the finer points, or do you actually have an okay time with all of that? I don't think I overthink what I'm going to talk about, but I, I think there is a tendency to want to do more things across more channels and that is, and this is true no matter what we're trying to market. Like I found this was a problem in every startup I worked at. We, we tried to do too many things across too many channels instead of just focusing in on the channels we knew were successful and just optimizing those. I think you're always better to just, you know, if you've got some channels that are working, just crush those channels first before you think about other places to go. 
And so I had to resist doing a lot of things like that were just kind of outside of what I knew was going to work for the book. And, you know, I did, I did a handful of smaller experiments with other things, but, but for me, like I know public speaking works for me. I know a certain, a certain kind of thing on social works for me. I know a certain kind of content works for me. I know podcasting works for me. That's enough. <laughs> like I don't need to go into, like people were asking me, what am I doing with email campaigns? Like, I got a list. It's pretty big. I hit the <laughs> list a few times. It's okay. But I never really had the pop out of email for the book that I that I did for other things. And so I just dropped it. I was like, I don't have to do email. Just because other people did email and did good things with email doesn't mean I have to do it, right? Same thing with like, oh, you should launch your own podcast or do your own YouTube channel and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, I could. But I've never really done one of those before. And I don't know whether that's going to work or not. And and I certainly haven't tapped out the channels that I know work. So why wouldn't I just stick to the stuff that I know works and do that until there isn't any more juice to squeeze out of that lemon? Then I'll go look for new things. <laughs> so I think that's the thing that, that that's the hardest is you, you'll get sick of stuff and you'll say, oh, maybe I'm doing too many conferences or whatever. And then you got to ask yourself, does conference still work? Yes. Then why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you triple that? <laughs> Like people get bored of their own tactics, but if they're working, like, why not just do more of that? Like, if SEO is working for you, why not just put your foot on the floor there and then, you know, worry about other things when you tap that out? So that sounds like a lot of common sense to me. <laughs> and maybe that's maybe that's something that marketers are are missing across the board is just every once in a while, I'll take a step back and does this make oh, sense? We like, like that. We like the shiny new things in marketing, yeah. right? And so we're like, ooh, the shiny new thing, you know. And then we're all like, oh, we're gonna go video. We gotta do video. Like now, I think you do actually need to do video. But I see the marketers jump on things super early, and you know, and again, it, if you got nothing else to do, fine. You got the cycles, fine. You maxed out all your other things you could do, fine. But. You know, remember when everyone said email was going to be dead and e- email for is so not dead. Like for most of the companies I know, it's still a very, very good lead generation channel. But we've been saying email is dead for ages and we just we're impatient as marketers. We want the new, new stuff because it's fun and cool. But, Absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah. So sometimes you got to, you know, and as a marketing leader, I think you got to fight that a little bit and be the voice of reason on your team a little bit and say, yes, I know we want to do voice search, <laughs> but <laughs> conferences are still working for us. And I know maybe we're bored of conferences, but hey, you know, I can show ROI on that stuff and we haven't even scratched the surface on it. Maybe we want to push that a little harder. And yeah, we'll do a little experiment on voice search. But Well, I have, I have just one final question for you, directed toward the marketers, of course. If you had just, if you were talking to being a mentor for an in-house marketer, somebody just kind of at the start of their career, based on the things that you've seen and the things that you've done, what would be the biggest call to action you would have for that marketer early on in their career? You know, there's a few things like, like one is early in your career. I think it's, I think it's good to get exposure to a lot of stuff. Like, and I think, again, we have this tendency to get really tactical and and get really focused on one tactic. So people say, oh, you know, I'm going to get really good at email marketing. I'm just going to be amazing at it. I'm going to be amazing at flows. I'm going to master Eloqua and Marketo and all the things. And I'll just be so good at that. Right. Or I'll just be 
superstar SEO and it'll just be everything to everything and everything. But in order, if you want to be an executive at some point in your career and run stuff at some point in your career, you're going to have to manage people that are doing all kinds of things. <laughs> and and the, the best way to be able to manage people that are doing all kinds of things is to know some stuff about all kinds of things. So it's, it's okay to be kind of broad. At the same time, getting a job requires that you can explain what the heck you're good at. So, which, which is kind of a positioning exercise for yourself. So I think you need to be thinking about why does somebody want to hire me and make sure you've got, you're building on that, whatever that is, that makes you a better and better and rarer and more interesting hire for whatever that thing is. But at the same time, you can't lose sight of your own career goals and thinking about you know, what are the skills I'm actually going to need? Like, if I want to be VP, what do I need to be a VP? And the world's greatest SEO doesn't get to be VP of the SEOs. They get to be VP of people doing all kinds of stuff. (laughs) And so you need to kind of manage both of those things, right? Specialization on the thing that gets you a job and makes you a rare skill and whatever, but also this bigger picture view of the world that's going to enable you to be an executive or run your own thing if you want to do it or, you know, manage a bunch of people doing a bunch of different things. And so you got to think about where that is too. That's probably lousy advice, but you know what? That's, that's, <laughs> nah. that's what you get. I <laughs> thought it was great. <laughs> no, really, I really appreciate you coming on. I learned, I learned a lot about positioning, which is a kind of a new thing for me to really dive deep into. So I always know it's a good podcast. If I learn something, I know the audience will too. So I really cool. appreciate you coming on. I do want to give you a chance to kind of talk about what you're working on right now and where people can follow you. Yeah. So, you know, right now I'm, I'm, I'm on this never ending book tour. It feels like, so, you know, this year has been really focused on the book. So yeah, if you want to buy the book, it's on Amazon and it's called obviously awesome. If you want to learn something about positioning, you can go there. My website's aprildunford.com. I normally am, am a semi-active blogger, but not so much lately because I'm super focused on book promo. But once my book tour is over in the next month or two, uh, I hope to go back to spending more time writing about. I have so many topics I want to write about right now. It's like, it's kind of ridiculous. I have notebooks full of like, oh, I'm going to write a thing about that. I'm going to write a thing about that. But I, uh, so, so I'm warning y'all now it's coming. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> but, uh, but right now the easiest place to find me other than aprildenver.com is like on a stage at a conference coming to you soon. <laughs> awesome. And that's it. And then yeah. obviously Twitter, LinkedIn, places like that. Feel free to. Oh yeah. Please, I'm, please I'm at April Dunford on Twitter and that's my, that's my most active social media channel. So at April Dunford. Yeah. Follow me there. Yeah. I'm trying to be, I try to like be fun on Twitter. Like I feel like Twitter is sometimes mm. a big downer. And so it sure I'm is. trying to like, <laughs> I'm trying to make my stream a source of joy. So you can follow at April Dunford for joyous tweets about cats and dogs doing stupid things and the occasional thing about <laughs> positioning. <laughs> As it should be in that order. <laughs> yeah, like exactly in that order. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, April, for, for hopping on. Really appreciate it. And please, again, check out aprildunford.com. Follow her at April Dunford. And buy the book, obviously awesome. 
And that's it for today's episode. Again, if you're a first-time listener or you've been at it since the beginning, please go ahead and rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. Wherever you get your podcasts, we've got you covered anywhere you want. 